0: According to local legend, Raritan Landing was established along an Indian trail. The name of the band of Indians would have been the Raritan, identified as part of the Lenape. They lived on land that became present-day New Jersey, southeastern New York, southwestern Connecticut, northeastern Delaware, and eastern Pennsylvania. I'm Douglas Omak. This is Uncovering Raritan Landing.
1: At Rared Landing, the quality of 18th century sites was just uh, fantastic. Just learning other field techniques and overall site management, you know, working along that was, it was a great job, but also a great educational experience.
2: The Lenape are, they're known as the grandfathers Mm -hmm. in the East. So their historical territory prior to European colonization covered um new jersey eastern pennsylvania southern parts of new york and northern parts of delaware
1: probably the most common artifacts are and the most recognizable artifacts are projectile points so what what we'd commonly call arrowheads though frankly most of them weren't arrowheads they were spear points and and knives the
3: proprietors did say that um, settlers um needed to clear Indian titles. So you were both supposed to get a title from the proprietor, but you also were supposed to clear the title with the Native American.
1: It's probably the largest excavation or examination of a town that no longer exists.
2: You know, it's important for us to maintain our our languages and our culture and our histories and our stories, um, you know, both for our own communities and for the next generations, um, so that they will have, you know, they'll be able to continue and to grow and to develop their, um, you know, their own Nanakope or Lenape identity.
0: The Lenape have been in New Jersey for thousands of years.
1: A 12,000-year heritage in this area, stretching back well before the, the pyramids or, or ancient Rome. Uh, the Lenape and their ancestors were living here in New Jersey.
0: That's Dr. Vite. We asked him to explain the archaeology and history of the Native Americans of the Garden State.
1: My name is Richard Vite, and I'm a professor in the Department of History and Anthropology at Monmouth University, where I also serve as interim dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. I'm also a board member of the New Jersey Historical Commission and chair of a regional archaeological organization, the Council for Northeast Historical Archaeology.
0: He has studied the Lenape and their culture for over four decades.
1: I would have started studying the Lenape in the, um, in the late 1980s while while I was working in Highland Park, New Jersey for a professional archaeological firm. For every study we did, whether we were investigating a historic site or a pre-contact Native American site, we always had to summarize what we would have called the regional prehistory of the area, the pre-contact stories and knowledge we had about the Lenape. We
0: know the Lenape have lived here because of the evidence found on archaeological sites.
1: Native American sites are located across the state from, from Sussex County to Cape to Cape May.
0: The place where the most archaeological artifacts have been unearthed is a place called Abbott Farm. There are so many artifacts because the people lived on this chunk of land and then left, returned, and returned the next year. The site is located in present day Mercer and Burlington counties.
1: It runs from what today would be Trenton through Hamilton Township uh, down into down into Bordentown, roughly where Crosswick's Creek comes into the Delaware River. A pioneering archaeologist, the state's first, for all intents and purposes, a fellow named Charles Conrad Abbott, who lived in, in Hamilton Township in the uh, 1870s and 80s, started finding ancient stone tools. And, and Abbott, who was a naturalist, Trained as a physician, but was really sort of a natural history writer he He wrote about these artifacts and argued that Native Americans had been present in the Delaware Valley for tens of thousands of years based on his finds Now it turns out he he didn't have very good control over uh, in, in terms of understanding how old the artifacts were he didn't have the scientific techniques we did
0: and according to Dr. Veit, settlements were located in present day towns and cities. That became part of Middlesex County.
1: Archaeological sites relating to their presence have been found from from Perth Amboy and and South Amboy at sort of the mouth of the Raritan River, all the way all the way through Middlesex County and up into Somerset and and Warren and and Hunterdon counties, a varying sites. Many of these sites were were along rivers because rivers are kind of the the highways uh, of early America.
0: His favorite story about Lenape archaeology happened while he was still in graduate school. He was helping at a site not far from Raritan Landing, at a place known as the Dismal Swamp. Archaeology was being conducted because a road was being widened and a new housing development was being constructed. The crew found what he referred to as very rich collections. But then they found something that jump-started their imagination. They found a hearth, or a place where a fire was built.
1: Think of a campfire in the woods. We found one of those, but it was buried under about three feet of soil, but it was still perfectly intact. As we excavated it and sort of mapped in every stone, and in between some of them were actual projectile points, probably spear points, beautifully made out of out of jasper. We we kind of imagined uh the Lenape and, and again their ancestors who who had sat there on the side of a brook thousands of years ago and cooked their meals told stories raised their children and been part of a community as that we were now exploring you know through archaeology sitting around those same stones thousands of years later and it was like it was a really it was a, a great project because it was sort of this powerful connection with with the past, and and I understand that the artifact from that project were later, and, and may still be on display in uh, in the Edison Township Municipal Building.
0: Dr. Vite said the fire pit was buried under three feet of soil. The reason why these artifacts are found three feet under the surface is because of the environment of New Jersey and the surrounding region.
1: The nature of New Jersey. Because we're in the northeast, in an area that used to be primarily forested, we have what we would call a depositional environment, and that means that soils tend to build up over time, and that serves to obscure or bury archaeological sites. Often they are hard to find without formal excavation.
0: If excavated artifacts are the puzzle pieces of the past, then what kind of artifacts reveal the life or the culture of the Lenape?
1: probably the most common artifacts, the most recognizable artifacts are projectile points. So what what we'd commonly call arrowheads, though, frankly, most of them weren't arrowheads. They were spear points and, and knives and, and other cutting tools. Only a small percentage were, in fact, arrowheads.
0: If you thought there was one type of projectile point, you'd be wrong.
1: So there are numerous different designs for projectile points. The latest period, sort of the last 502,000 years when bows and arrows become very common. We have lots of kind of small triangular points. And archaeologists have come up with typologies, like extensive guides to the different types of, of stone tools.
0: They are organized based on where they were first found.
1: We have projectile point types in New Jersey uh, with names like Orient Fishtail. And the Orient Fishtail Point was this this type this style was first found uh, out at Orient Point on Long Island, but is also found throughout the Middle Atlantic region. And it looks a little bit like a goldfish cracker in terms of form, so hence fish tail uh, the way it the way it appears. We've come up with these names for the different projectile points, and then characteristics, the types of stones they're made out of, the form of the projectile points. And and that helps us kind of organize archaeological collections, assemblages, and, and tell when particular items were made, when they may when they may date from. But I guess a big caution that needs to be thrown in there is these names, Orient Fishtail, Madison Point, Lavana Point, are names that we've given modern archaeologists who generally in most cases were not Native Americans, have given these finds. And, and they may have been called very different things by the Lenape thousands of years ago uh, when they were making some of these styles of points. They can be arranged, and this is a useful thing, sort of they they change over time, just like styles of clothing change over time, but over longer periods. And that that is a useful thing for archaeologists because, again, we've got about Roughly twelve thousand years of human habitation in in New Jersey and surrounding states. So knowing roughly how old the site is can be important and, and society Native American societies were not were not static. They they evolved, they changed as the environment uh that people were living in also was was changing over this very long period of time.
0: Over the past few decades Archaeologists have discovered stone tools. Different stone tools had different functions.
1: Let's say a fillet of fish or or even a butcher a bear or butcher a deer. Each of those is probably going to look a little bit different because it's serving a different function. So Just just like different kind of tools in a toolbox today. And then there may be differences that speak to kind of regional or, or cultural differences, different styles as well. Stone tools have seen an extraordinary amount of study by archaeologists because essentially they last almost forever. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a bumper sticker you sometimes see at archaeological conferences, and it says, "Love is fleeting; stone tools are forever."
0: Another type of artifact is pottery.
1: Shards, rather, of Native American pottery are sometimes found, though sometimes it's quite beautiful was fired at a low temperature. So in areas that have been plowed, pottery often is broken up into very small pieces and it's hard to identify. And then, you know, another common artifact type is something called uh, either thermally altered or fire cracked rock. So these are, are are stones that were once part of either a hearth for cooking or uh, what we would call a stone boiling feature where Heated rocks were used in cooking, and those can be ubiquitous uh, in the sense that there can be spreads of these fragmentary rocks found over, over large areas. The artifacts are out there. Some are more recognizable than others, but taken together the artifacts and the patterning of those finds can really tell us a lot about how people in the past lived their lives.
0: One thing the artifacts did not teach us is the amount of indigenous people that inhabited the land. Determining
1: that answer is an educated guess. Well, a well-educated guess. The population would have been relatively modest. We don't, we don't have a census for ancient New Jersey. But scholars have argued that you know, it could have been eight to maybe 20,000 people were living in New Jersey when the first European settlers uh, arrived or the first explorers. Sail up the coast.
0: There have also been names historians and archaeologists have used to describe bands in a region of the state, such as the northern or southern part.
1: There seem to be some cultural differences, interestingly enough, between the Native Americans who were resident in northern New Jersey, who were often lumped together as uh, Muncie, and Native Americans in. The southern and central part of the state, and and where that boundary is, is is open to to debate. But the folks in the southern part of the state, who historically were often called the Unami, uh, or even uh, the Unalachijo.
0: The Lenape, the Munsee, the Unami, they were not organized in a large group or nation. Dr. Vait informed us the process of centralization was sped up because of the interaction with the European colonial powers of the Dutch Republic of the Netherlands or Spain or Great Britain.
1: Their organization it's on a it's on a local level and it's what we might call small scale and um it doesn't reflect any lack of sophistication on the part of the individuals it it reflects an adaptation to a particular environment and a particular way of life. So we see the Lenape organized into into bands and these are in essence extended extended families, in some cases even a couple hundred people. Uh and some of those those bands, some of those groups, their names are still very much present on the landscape. So the Sanhican would have been a group near Trenton, the Raritan, uh in the Raritan Valley, but also Staten Island and, and perhaps Even further afield. And there's some mobility to these groups uh, over time. Throughout the year, the Lenape were never
0: in one location. They moved around to take advantage of the land's rich, diverse resources.
1: The Lenape are fairly mobile because they want to be able to access different types of resources at different points in the year. Many of our larger settlements and today archaeological sites are along rivers. Or adjacent to swampy areas, and the reason for that seems to be these are areas that are are resource rich so a lot of different food sources, and that seems to be actually why many of the why the Abbott farm is, for instance, where it is you not only have the Delaware River with big runs of fish in the spring uh you also have. Crosswicks Creek, you have a large marshy area, and marshes, I like to think of them, and I know this is going to sound a little bit silly, I think of them almost like kind of the Walmarts of the pre-contact world, and that you've got all these different plant and animal resources.
0: The Lenape used stone tools to build housing and other structures.
1: Most of their shelters are temporary. They're primarily, so far as we could tell, Their more permanent structures are are wigwams that are built somewhat expediently, kind of quickly, uh, but effectively using wooden uh, poles set into the ground, tied together to form an arch covered with mats or with bark, sometimes multiple layers to provide insulation, with hearths either inside or outside, or both they're relatively small in scale sometimes they're specialized structures there were specialized structures for women used during certain times of the month particularly in northern new jersey we've got evidence for larger structures that are akin to the longhouses built by the iroquois in upstate new york because they're so they're so ephemeral right they're built using entirely natural materials set into the ground they didn't have you know, a, a long lifespan. It's not like a uh, a house with a stone foundation where it might last for decades or centuries. But we do find traces of their houses uh, on archaeological sites. You have to excavate incredibly carefully in sort of large areas because you play kind of an archaeological game of connect the dots to figure out which of the little stains that reflects posts which line up with each other to, have, uh, to form a building. House patterns have been found in uh, many different areas of the state, particularly in the Delaware Valley, but, but also in inland regions.
0: One of the remnants of the Lenape and the Muncie throughout Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey are the place names. Perhaps New York's most famous Muncie word is most likely Manhattan, which means hilly island. Another translator during the early 1800s called it place where people go to be intoxicated. Well-known town and city names come from Lenape words as well. Hohokus in North Jersey is perhaps the only town in America with two hyphens in it. According to one translator, Hohokus means red cedar and little bottle gourd. Even Shimokin in Pennsylvania means place of eels. The root of the language spoken by Muncie and Lenape comes from a place associated with upstate New York.
1: All of the Lenape are are members of kind of a larger language group, the Algonquin, sometimes called the Algonquin Linguistic Group or Language Group. And you might think of that as similar to folks who speak uh, Romance languages, so right, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian.
0: We wanted to know if the language of the Muncie and Lenape was being preserved, So we spoke with another scholar.
2: My name is Carell Hall. I am a Ph.D. candidate at Rutgers University. I am working on my doctorate in linguistic anthropology, researching Nanticoke and Lenape sovereignty through their language revitalization practices. Um, I'm a member of the Nanticoke tribe in Delaware.
0: The Nanticoke have a special title for the Lenape.
2: The Lenape are they're known as the grandfathers Mm -hmm. in the East. So their historical territory um, prior to European colonization covered um, New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, southern parts of New York, and northern parts of Delaware. And the Nanacoke tribe are a little bit further south in the Chesapeake region, um, in sort of eastern shore of Maryland and Delaware. And they are, you know, one of these communities who also view the Lenape as grandfathers. So, you know, in our in our ancient past, we were part of this community, and then we branched off to become the Nanticoke, who are the people of the Tidewater.
0: Ms. Hall's ancestors lived in what is now southern New Jersey and parts of Delaware.
2: Um, my community, the Nanacoke, is in southern Delaware, Um, near the town of Millsboro, Delaware. And then there's also a Lenape tribe of Delaware that's in Cheswold, which is just outside of Dover, Delaware. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's also the Nanakokalai Lenape community in Southern New Jersey near Bridgeton. And these communities are all sister communities. They're interrelated. We've been, um, you know, we've had marriages between these Mm -hmm. communities for the last few hundred years. I belong to the Nanacoke community in in southern Delaware, but I have family in all of the communities.
0: Ms. Hall grew up in the Midwest, but her mother grew up in the Northeast.
2: I grew up um, in Ohio, so a little bit geographically separated from my community. My mom, who is Nanticoke, uh grew up in Dover, Delaware, and so Growing up, I knew who we were. I knew that we were Nanacoke and I knew, you know, where our people were and some of the more sort of general history that helped me form my Nanacoke identity. But as far as some of the more like specific parts of, of our history uh, that I've been learn, learning more about um, as an adult.
0: During her childhood, Miss Hall learned about her grandfather, who was one of the first integrated at the Pennsylvania School for the Deaf. She also heard stories from elders, her mother, and historians. Miss Hall's mother attended powwows during the 1970s. Miss Hall started to attend them as a child and later as an adult. She started to learn about Native American revitalization in college.
2: I attended Dartmouth College, which is a school that has Created, they've invested in a um, large Native American program, and so within that, they are recruiting, recruiting Native students from all over the country, um, from many different tribal communities. They have um, a Native American Studies program, so you can take um, you can you can take classes in Native American Studies, and there's enough of them to have um, you could major in it. Um, I ended up minoring in it. Um, And so I was able to take some classes. Um, There was one class I took that was just broadly on uh, Native American language revitalization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was able to um, get to know other Native students from many other communities, hear about their stories, that they were, Mm -hmm. um, uh, their work in their languages, in their communities.
0: When we started talking about the language of the Lenape, we learned there is not just one language for all Lenape.
2: The Lenape language, it's sort of broadly separated into two dialects. There's the Munsee, which is the northern dialect, and the Inami, which is the southern dialect, more or less. The was retained by many of the Lenape people who were removed out to Oklahoma, and they um, were able to, you know, work with some linguists and um, to help to sort of revitalize and to document and to build their language learning program. Muncie was able to be retained a little bit better by those who moved up into Canada, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they're still working on that revitalization.
0: Ms. Hall is also researching and revitalizing the Nanticoke dialect, which is extremely difficult. As she participates in this intense study of the language, she is part of a larger effort to preserve the culture and history of the Indigenous people of New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. The Nanticoke dialect may be forgotten, but it is not gone.
2: The Nanticoke dialect specifically is what we often like to call a sleeping language, meaning mm-hmm. that there aren't any active Native fluent speakers. It can be mm-hmm. awoken. And so that's some of the work that we've been That we've been doing. So it was last spoken in the mid 1800s, and so it's been sleeping for a long time. However, Mm -hmm. there are, um, we have dictionaries that were Mm -hmm. taken in the 1700s, and as well as we can rely on our relationships with the other Algonquian communities.
0: It is important to remember that the dialects of Lenape, Muncie, and Unami as well as the nanticoke dialect are all rooted in an ancient algonquin or algonquian language.
2: Algonquian communities we're all related in in our ancient past. The languages are also also related in their ancient past. And so, you know, we can um we can all sort of lean on each other as we are working on revitalizing our individual communities languages by looking at um You know what what pieces each of us have and they can you know help each other to sort of solve this
0: puzzle in 2006 and 2011 language classes were available at the tribal center online classes were also available miss hall's efforts are focused on what is called the nanticoke language project she's working with a linguist and another member of the nanticoke community and they are focused on creating diverse educational experiences Ms. Hall is working on an illustrated children's book in the Nanticoke dialect. She is discussing developing an app and an interactive website. The goal is to make the dialect accessible to people of all ages, but there are challenges. Funding is an issue, but there is another.
2: Our linguist has been very, very integral to this as far as you know, his ability to survey so many of these other languages and to kind of figure out what they can tell us about our, you know, our own Nanakook language. Like, we have these dictionaries, but they were recorded by individuals who were not particularly familiar with the language. You see this word written out, but but it doesn't, Mm-hmm. You have to figure out, like, you know, how how are we pronouncing this? You know, how, how do yeah. we speak this word that we're reading? And there's many different, you know, techniques for doing that as far as being familiar with what some of the use, the common, like, vowel usages are in the language, and then listening to how the words are pronounced, you know, across all those sort of similar and related languages helps you to kind of do that work. But our linguist has been very helpful in, you know, in doing all of that. The other challenge is that you know when we're teaching these languages to members of the community you know it's their heritage language but it's still unfamiliar and the pronunciations and the grammar are all very different from English trying to make it, to make it easy for people to learn and to grasp and doing a lot of repetition but those are some of the more difficult aspects of trying to revitalize a language
0: If you are familiar with certain towns in parts of the Northeast, it's possible the name is from a Muncie or other type of dialect.
2: The language is is all around us. There are so many place names in New Jersey that are Lenape names or at least have Lenape Mm -hmm. history to them. So we have words like Piscataway and Mawa and Chesapeake and Ramapo.
0: There are more examples of Lenape or Muncie words that are used as names of towns or rivers and valleys. Nora Thompson Dean, an herbalist and full blooded Delaware, stated Matuchin, a borough in Middlesex County, is from a southern Unami word, Matokshanig, meaning Prickly Pear Creek. The word Raritan was used to name a town, one of New Jersey's major rivers, and a valley. And Raritan was used to name the town that was investigated. Raritan Landing. It comes from a Muncie word, lehatun, meaning amid the mountains. James Lonebear Bear a Lenape, believed it came from Raritan, a branch of the Lenape that lived in central New Jersey.
2: It's important for us to maintain our, our languages and our culture and our histories and our stories, both for our own communities and for the next generation's. So that they will have, you know, they'll be able to continue and to grow and to develop their own Nanakoka or Lenape identity. We make sure that the people around us know that we are here and know that they are occupying our land, particularly environmental rights and protections. This land—it's our land, but it's also our responsibility.
0: Since the podcast focuses on Raritan Landing, we wanted to learn about the Raritan branch of the Lenape. Again, Dr. Richard Vite
1: they are one of the many subgroups uh that make up the larger Lenape society and there's interesting historical research that's going on kind of as we speak about their origins and their activities both in New Jersey but also in adjacent parts of New York and perhaps even into into New England but their name becomes associated with and reminds us of their important presence in in the Raritan Valley. The thought of a nation as this larger group, then the Raritan would be essentially one of the major bands within within this group.
0: What plant and animal resources were consumed by the Raritans and the Lenape?
1: So the Lenape diet is a mixed diet. By the late pre-contact period, they're growing a number of of crops and the famous ones which we still consume, uh, which are largely uh, native to the Americas, are are corn or maize, beans and, and squash. And taken uh, taken together, those crops provide a fairly nutritious and, and balanced diet. Fishing is important. Shellfish uh, is also uh, important. Clams, oysters, in fact, one of the largest surviving archaeological sites in the state that you can sort of see above ground relating to Lenape is a shell mound in Tuckerton, New Jersey, which rises up out of the marsh and it just represents, you know, decades and decades and decades of eating and discarding shad, which come up the Delaware in the spring, but also fish that spend part of their time in the ocean and part of their time in rivers. Such as the Atlantic sturgeon would have been a major food source. There's evidence whales may have been consumed. There are some whale bones that have been found. Trees that produce nuts, acorns, really can't be eaten without processing. But if, if processed properly, can be eaten and made into a sort of flour. Other types of nuts, like chestnuts, uh, would also have been have been eaten and been a major part of the uh, Lenapes. Um, sort of diet.
0: Lenape hoped the food that was stored lasted throughout the winter.
1: Foodstuffs are going to be stored in a couple different ways. They can store foodstuffs in ceramic containers, and that will help, let's say, keep insects and and rodents away. Many of the house structures in the upper Delaware Valley that the late Herb Kraft from Seton Hall University excavated, he found enormous pit features, in and around the houses and by enormous i mean like the size of the size of a trash can and these are presumably used when these structures are still inhabited as places to store uh, large quantities of food and they may have been lined with basketry or with hides to provide some protection from the soil the lenape also Engage in uh, pretty extensive fishing, uh, especially seasonally on rivers like the Delaware. And this would have been true on the Raritan and even the South River. And there, it appears that, you know, if they're they're catching more fish than they can, than they can consume readily, they are they're drying fish, they're smoking fish over over smoky fires to help preserve them. Uh, they would have likely done something similar with venison and and other other meats to preserve to preserve food for longer periods of time.
0: James Lone Bear Reevy, a Lenape, stated people were taught to use as much of the animal as possible.
1: Animal hides are critical to the Lenape as uh, as a source for clothing, containers, just really incredibly useful. So they're processing them primarily through a method that today we would call tanning. Uh, we suspect that a lot of what they're doing is is uh, something called brain tanning, where the animal hide would be placed in a container with materials that would assist in its tanning, and that could be that could be the animal's brain. It could be, but it could also be other other materials. The chemicals in those materials allow the hide to become soft and and pliable and workable. And also serve to kind of preserve it
0: after offering a great deal of information about the land they lived on and the food they ate, Dr. Vite also had great insight about the Lenape lifespan.
1: It's presumably somewhat shorter than today, so we're thinking you know it may be as short as in uh, the the one might live into his or her forties. Thinking about this question, I found really conflicting evidence. William Penn and others and Penn is interesting because he interacts quite a bit with the Lenape and he's he's almost like a uh self-trained uh, ethnographer to use a modern term. He's kind of a sympathetic observer. He notes that there are some Lenape who who appear to be, you know, almost a century old. What he's basing that on, I am not I'm not sure. So so some individuals live to great age. And they, they, those individuals who did live to be elderly, I would argue, were were highly valued members of society. So, if you think about a, a society that is based largely on powerful oral traditions passed down from generation to generation, someone who who is able to live to a great age would be. Like an incredible repository of information, they would have seen so many, so many yearly cycles go by, and have that much more information uh, than other other individuals.
0: There are many myths about how indigenous people dressed or decorated their bodies. Lenape and Muncie painted their bodies.
1: I think it's part of a, a broader interest in aesthetics and and um, in appearance. Among the Lenape, the Lenape, they go to they go to some length to present themselves to their colleagues and to other people in a way that they find attractive and compelling. So, body paint it's used both symbolically. For instance, when when individuals uh, when men would have gone to war, uh, they uh, in many cases would have applied uh, body paint. But colored pigments are also applied to uh, individuals who've passed away to augment their their appearance when preparing to bury someone uh, the body would be would be washed and cleaned and um, red ochre, a particular pigment would have been applied to the cheeks of the individual in fact, that ochre, which is very very you know kind of a a rich reddish color, seems to have been particularly important in in burial ceremonialism, maybe because in some ways it almost uh, reflects a color similar to blood and could speak to issues of birth and and rebirth.
0: We know how the Lenape
1: treated their deceased. As we understand it, a body would be kept for three days before it was buried, and it may have been in part to uh, in the hopes that the person might come back to to life. in ancient times, it looks like bodies were often buried in kind of a, a fetal position, almost like uh, you know an infant being born. So perhaps the idea of a, a second birth. And, and there is even some evidence of ancient uh, cremation of uh, of human remains. Uh, some of the oldest human remains from the state appear to have been cremated. Now there are different ways that the dead are placed by different groups of that the dead are treated by different groups of Lenape, but there's some consistencies in the idea that uh, this is a tremendous loss to the community, and they they go to great lengths to treat uh, the dead with respect.
0: Once it was determined the departed was gone, the body
1: was respectfully prepared. In ancient times, It appears that Native Americans were sometimes buried with their possessions or kind of prized possessions, probably with the thought that they would be, that these possessions would be useful to them in the afterworld. And we see a lot of that actually right at at contact. And by that, I mean sort of the 1600s and 1700s, that a, a person's personal possessions might have been buried with him. There was an example from the upper Delaware Valley where Presumably a Lenape leader was was found buried with uh, with a gun, a knife, and uh, and a woman who was buried with him, who may also have been a leader in her own right, buried with uh, a small chest that contained both sewing implements and, and rings and other personal implements.
0: The Lenape were even buried in coffins.
1: The death of a family member is is incredibly, incredibly challenging for them. They would go to great lengths to to honor their dead. So when someone passes away, the body is carefully uh, prepared by relatives. In the historic period, they're buried in cemeteries that we would recognize. The position of the body was very important. Um, later in the historic period, they're actually buried in coffins, but little holes are carved in the coffins. Uh, that are different for for men and women and Lenape believed
0: once a member of the community was killed or he or she died, their soul traveled to a specific place in the universe
1: and this is This is something that's very true today, where Native American grave sites and and the artifacts associated with them are are really something that are important to the Lenape and their descendants and they don't want disturbed because they feel that's such a sacred relationship. Part of their spiritual beliefs was, included the idea that when a person died, that that their spirit or their soul would actually travel uh, along the Milky Way, which is, I think, a beautiful idea to join with the creator. The graves themselves would have been marked uh, either with mounds of earth or, in some cases, uh, posts, wooden posts that, that might have been painted or decorated.
0: One of the cultural practices that helped Lenape maintain their peaceful outlook on society was their spirituality
1: well the Lenape religion is is different than many religions that are practiced in say twenty first century America, in that there were sacred places on the land, some of which we still know. There were individuals who were religious practitioners but there was not a sort of a written creed or or elaborate temples uh or churches as we might see in you know other other denominations today i think the term that anthropologists might use would be polytheistic in the sense that there are multiple religious beings gods if you will that are important to the lenape and have different functions so they live in a world that is not at all separate from religion. Day-to-day life and religion are are intermixed for the Lenape. Spirit beings inhabit the world. They believe, so far as we can tell, in, in a creator being who who created the world. And they have important creation stories about how the first man and woman are created from branches of a tree, sprouts from a tree that is growing on on the back of a great turtle, that is that is the world we live in, that is kind of North America. They have regular ceremonies, both individual, uh, such as the vision quest, and also community ceremonies at the harvest <clears throat> that people participate in. There's um, some religious imagery survived from ancient times, uh, such as something called the missing, which is this mask-like face that relates to um success in hunting. Religion is is critical to the Lenape, and uh they have strong strong religious beliefs but they're they're different from from our own. And some of those beliefs are still practiced today.
0: One of the individual practices was the use of tobacco.
1: Well, tobacco, obviously modern tobacco is a mild stimulant. The tobacco that ancient Native Americans would have been smoking was a different strain of tobacco than the type that is today found in cigars or, or cigarettes. It was actually stronger, so more of a stimulant and perhaps even uh, mildly hallucinogenic compared to to modern tobacco. So it would have given folks an, an enhanced experience uh, of the world around them and I think uh, probably put them in, in touch with the spirit world.
0: The Lenape also believed in evil beings and witchcraft, and they believed they could
1: communicate with the dead. So they believe in witches and shamans, folks who are able to interact with the spiritual world in profound ways. Sometimes, in the case of witches, in 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 negative ways, and some of the bad things that befall individuals are associated with uh practice of witchcraft. There are what are sometimes called medicine bundles or, or that have been found um more ethno historically than archaeologically that may relate to individuals contacting the spirit the spirit world
0: when Western Europeans settled in Lenape hoking which meant land of the people it greatly affected the day-to-day lifestyle of the Lenape.
1: European settlement in New Jersey has a number of different uh, impacts on Lenape. First of all the arrival of European settlers and and their domesticated animals leads to the spread of disease and directly reduces in horrific ways Lenape populations at spread of disease. Pressure for land for agriculture increasingly pushes Lenape out of areas that they had found valuable for hunting and for other resources, for agriculture themselves. Over time, settler populations grow. That becomes more and more of a problem for the Lenape. They find themselves kind of pushed from from their traditional lands. Different conceptions of land ownership, uh, the idea of kind of owning land, Permanently through through deeds, uh, as opposed to traditional kind of hunting or agricultural lands, also impacts uh, impacts Lenape.
0: Western European settlers' use of land previously used by Lenape created a lot of difficulties and unfair treatment.
1: This becomes a major problem for the Lenape, and ultimately, their their lands are in a period of about a century. Between the mid-1600s and the middle of the 1700s, when we have important treaties at Easton in Pennsylvania and at Crosswicks in Burlington County, New Jersey, the Lenape have uh, either sold or been defrauded of, of much of their land in the state and are reduced to living in tiny communities on lands they still
0: hold. During the early 1600s, the Dutch and the Swedish settled in what became New Jersey. The Dutch West India Company, a powerful trading corporation, controlled what was known as New Netherland.
1: The Dutch in New Netherland, which is a broad area, right, stretching from the Delaware River, the area that Dutch claimed, up to the Connecticut River and and the Hudson Valley and, and all of New Jersey. The Dutch initially are trading with the Lenape, but are not they do not have large numbers of settlers in what would become New Jersey. There's there's small settlements um, on Burlington Island in the 1620s, and then in what today would be sort of Bergen and Hudson counties in the mid 17th century, with Jersey City, uh, Bergen Square in Jersey City being the first permanent uh, Dutch settlement in New Jersey, the first long-lasting one. The Dutch have Periods of intermittent warfare with the Lenape in the 17th century. There are a number of wars. The Peachtree War is is one that comes to mind. There's a horrific massacre of uh, Lenape who are actually seeking protection from the Dutch in Pavonia, which is uh, today, I guess, a, a path station stop.
0: Lenape experienced unfair treatment by the new Dutch governor and unfair trade relations from different European settlers who inhabited southwestern New Jersey.
1: There had been a a Dutch governor who was particularly, I I would say, genocidal in his activities, uh, Willem Kieft. When Peter Stuyvesant arrives, the last Dutch governor of New York, the situation improves somewhat in that he is so beset with uh, other challenges that he uh, he establishes better relations with uh, the Lenape in New Jersey. The Swedes, uh, similarly on the Delaware, they've inserted kind of a colony in the 1630s within New Netherland, which uh, was so sparsely settled that the Dutch couldn't do very much about it. While they do not necessarily have uh, open warfare with uh, the Lenape. They certainly are working against the best interest of the Lenape, though they are they too are engaged in trade.
0: The Lenape and Muncie were not warlike, but were involved in major colonial conflicts.
1: I would say that the Lenape were generally not warlike, that in, in fact they have a reputation as a highly respected group of individuals, uh, as a as a nation that's known more for being peaceful and collaborative rather than uh, prone to conflict. That said, in in the historic period, the early historic period, there is conflict between the Lenape and, and other Native American groups, sometimes from quite far afield, who who are raiding into New Jersey, perhaps trying to get access to the trade that the Lenape were participating in. And later during uh, the 18th century, the Lenape are um, serving with military forces both during the French and Indian Wars and later during the um, American Revolution, there are Lenape fighting both on the side of the patriots and on the side uh, of the loyalists.
0: After decades of living amongst indigenous people, Christian pastors and ministers established separate communities for the Lenape to live in, but ultimately the goal was to persuade the Lenape to halt their polytheistic spiritual beliefs and convert them to Christianity. One of these communities was located in Middlesex County, New Jersey.
1: There's an important mission community in in and around uh, Cranberry and Monroe Township. With the decline in population, as Native American numbers become smaller in the 18th century, missionaries, especially in New Jersey, uh, Presbyterian missionaries, take a distinct interest in the the Lenape in converting, in large part their interest is in converting the Lenape to, to Christianity, particularly Presbyterianism. So the Brainerd brothers are important missionaries who are active in and around Cranberry and also in New Brunswick who preach to the Lenape and ultimately form in what today is Monroe Township, a community called Bethel. Bethel is almost a place of refuge for, for Native Americans. It becomes fairly a, a fairly sizable community. We think a, a couple hundred individuals live there. Some of them were descendants of and relatives of uh major Lenape leaders from the uh from the early eighteenth century who had lived in, in places uh like Spotswood and uh and Old Bridge area.
0: Another event that affected the Lenape and Muncie was the American Revolution.
1: The American Revolution affects the Lenape in a couple different ways. Some Lenape living in New Jersey will, will fight on the side of the patriots. Other Lenape and their descendants who have moved west to what today would be western Pennsylvania, Ohio, even Indiana, will fight um, in some cases on the side of, of the British. For the Lenape and really for other Native American groups in the Northeast, there is no safe place uh, during the revolution, there's tremendous prejudice against Native Americans, and it is not clear to Native Americans, no matter which side they're serving on you know how the how the war will end, and whether the british or or the young United States what the relationship would be during the war.
0: Washington met with members of Lenape and made history.
1: Washington does interestingly enough meet with a group of Lenape or Delaware leaders at what's called the Middlebrook encampment, which would be in today's sort of Bridgewater and Bound Brook and Somerville area, who had uh, come east to negotiate a treaty with with the young United States. And um, there are descriptions of these Native American leaders on horseback seeing kind of a review of the troops and, and engaging in, in treaty-making activities. In fact, some individuals say that that is, and I did justifiably say that that's the first treaty the United States as an entity signs with a group of Native Americans, with a Native American nation, if you will.
0: After the American Revolution and after treaties were signed, the Raritans, a branch of the Lenape, experienced a series of misfortunes.
1: What ends up happening to the Raritan and to the other uh, Lenape groups, we have a series of, of tragedies, frankly. So the... Uh, Arrival of European colonists not only creates intense pressure for land and resources, pressure on the Lenape, but uh, it also introduces diseases to which the Lenape and other Native American populations had really no no uh, uh, no great biological resistance. They 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 and their ancestors had not been exposed to these diseases previously, so things that And Old World populations would be troublesome, but not deadly, for Native American populations often proved quite deadly. So we see a tremendous reduction in population, Native American population, over the course of the 17th, 18th centuries.
0: After Bethel, Lenape moved to Brotherton, a community established during the mid-18th century in southwestern New Jersey, in present-day Medford. Brotherton lasted until the early 19th century when the land was sold. The Lenape that inhabited Bethel and Brotherton headed west.
1: First they moved to northwestern New Jersey to places around Minisink Island in the Delaware. And then ultimately they moved they move further west as land is either purchased from them or in some cases stolen. Today there are major descendant populations in Oklahoma and in Wisconsin. Now, other Lenape do not leave. They remain in place and intermarry with other populations and uh, maintain their traditions and and are still here living in New Jersey as as our neighbors in places like Neptune Township and, and Monmouth County.
0: To learn more about Lenape living in New Jersey during the late 1800s and early 1900s, we spoke with the executive director of the Sand Hill Historical Association.
3: My name is Claire Garland. I grew up here in Monmouth County, where my family has been over 200 years. Currently, I am the director of the Sand Hill Indian Historical Association, a family group that we assembled uh, about 20 years ago to try to save our family heritage.
0: She also serves other organizations.
3: I also serve as a representative on the Commission of uh, American Indian Affairs with the State Department. And I uh, work with the New Jersey Historical Commission. I'm the co-chair of the Native American Life and Culture program that they're doing this year. This year, they're celebrating the year of indigenous people.
0: She has a lot of responsibilities as the director of the association.
3: So our mission was to try to preserve our historical heritage, uh, working with state and local commissions to educate and inform the public. I do lectures and talks and set up displays and expedi- exhibitions, and um, <clears throat> all trying to educate people about Native people living here not only two, three hundred years ago, but now, uh, still mm-hmm. living here as part of the community.
0: We wanted her to explain the Sandhill people.
3: The Sandhill people were mostly Lenape clan people living here. At the shore, I traced tax and property records back to 1780, when it was called Shrewsbury, which was nine years before George Washington was even inaugurated as president. As time went by, they intermarried with uh, Cherokee people who moved here from, I think, Cherokee County, Georgia, because they said they were from Georgia. The Cherokee people had treaties with the English. They started being pushed off their property, pushed off their land. They were headed north to Canada, where it was also under English control. Somehow they stopped here in Eatontown, where they had cousins, and they started mm-hmm. showing up on the censuses uh, in the early 1800s.
0: Miss Garland sought out to find the story of her family, and she succeeded.
3: The name was Richardson. For the Cherokees, and Reeve for the Lenape's. I was mm-hmm. able to uh, trace the property records and military records and censuses and try to track them for the last couple hundred years and try to put the story together of the fact that they were able to survive economically, buy property, raise their families, build churches and schools and community, participate in community life, they ended up owning uh, over a hundred acres in Tinton Falls, and mm-hmm. um, that's where I grew up.
0: Identical to how Lenape adults raised young people, Miss Garland was informed of her family's history.
3: We had an oral history in the family of uh, the family story, migration from the south to the north. In the summertime, we um, had powwows on the. Uh, 15 acres that our great-grandparents owned outside of Asbury Park, a place called Richardson Heights, sometimes called Sand Hill. And that's where they got the name because it was on a, a big hill. They became known as Sand Hill Indians, and that's the name that kind of stuck from the mm-hmm. 1870s on.
0: Claire Garland heard a lot of stories from her family members during one enormous family event similar to a large reunion, and it happened at Richardson Heights at Sand Hill.
3: Family would come from all over New York, New Jersey, wherever they were, especially after uh, World War II. Families scattered and went to work in different places. But in the summer, uh, they would return to Richardson Heights, Sand Hill, and have a summer big picnic called a powwow. I just remember being there as a little kid and all the cousins and hearing the stories and meeting cousins that you didn't usually get to see all year long. Mm -hmm.
0: Even though many Lenape had moved to Canada or parts of the Midwest, the Sand Hill people thrived on property they owned and used as farmland.
3: I remember the property there because my grandmother's house was there, and it was farmland. Mm -hmm. They had a community corn crib, a smokehouse, barns, cows, pigs, large houses, Victorian houses, that they built. There were springs on the property, so they were able to pipe the water from the springs to the back porch.
0: Some members of the family picked strawberries, but Miss Garland's grandmother worked in her kitchen.
3: My grandmother baking practically every day Mm. because you just didn't have stores to go out to to buy bread or biscuits or cakes or pies or whatever. So every day they bake, they just bake something.
0: People in the Sand Hill community could talk to each other using telephones. This was during the 19-teens. People had to be very careful about what they said.
3: Phones weren't even common. You might have one phone in the hallway, and that was a party line connected to maybe six or ten families in the community. So Mm. anybody could pick up the phone and... (laughs) <laughs> Talk. <laughs> Listen in on your conversation.
0: Claire Garland's ancestors that did not work the land were engaged in other trades,
3: and they were builders. They built Asbury Park and Ocean Grove. At the time, were just developing in the eighteen seventies. They built houses and hotels and churches, and they built the boardwalk and uh, all kinds of structures.
0: Miss Garland's ancestors worked in the enormous hotels on the Jersey Shore during the late 1800s and in industries other than food service.
3: They were also involved in entertainment. They were very musically inclined, and uh, they had their own marching band, so they played different instruments, and in the summer in the boardwalk there were concerts and there was entertainment in the hotels and they participated in the jazz that hit the area in the 1900s.
1: But years
0: after World War II, the powwow stopped, the position of chief was eliminated, the council was dissolved. Older members of the Sand Hill people died, and very few continued the traditions and the preservation of Lenape culture. A family member donated precious pieces to a local museum.
3: As time went by... One of the cousins donated a number of items and artifacts, tribal regalia, and my grandmother's grandfather's account book to the Neptune Historical Museum. So that's mm. where it was housed for over 30 years until the town of Neptune decided they needed to expand the library and they had to close the museum to um, mm. do the construction.
0: Miss Garland initiated an effort so the previously donated items, the artifacts, the tribal regalia, the account book could be returned.
3: We were able to form a historical society, get all our items returned. And uh, so I've I've had things here for the last 20 years which I take out on tours and when I'm speaking or lecturing or family reunions. Mm-hmm. And um and just tried to preserve the family story.
0: Claire Garland tried to retrieve the family treasures because someone else with no connection to Lenape or the Sandhill people also attempted to retrieve the artifacts.
3: The number of people were trying to get their hands on our family possessions. People who weren't even related to us were claiming to be Sandhill people and who weren't. But we did uh, go through the state department we had letters going to the governor and the assembly and um, it took quite a process to get things returned but eventually once the state department got involved uh, and, and we had formed the historical association they returned everything
0: perhaps the toughest challenge she encountered was a lawsuit filed in 2009 between the sandhill people and the state of new jersey the Sandhill people demanded recognition and damages, totaling $1 trillion. But the plaintiffs were neither Lenape nor were they related to the families that inhabited Richardson Heights at Sandhill. Decades before the lawsuit, Garland had spent years researching deeds and other primary documents. This research proved the plaintiffs in the trillion dollar lawsuit were not related to Claire Garland or other inhabitants of Sand Hill.
3: When I heard about the case, I sent the judge a letter, and I told her these people had no connection at all with our tribe or family or clan. They they weren't even from New Jersey. People see a historical heritage, and they go for it because they can use that as a launching point to where whatever their plans are, casinos or whatever. It's taken probably a decade to kind of beat these people back and get the word out that they are not um, Sand Hill. They're mm. not connected with us. They're not related. There's no mm. marriage. There are no names that match. There's no just nothing.
0: Fortunately, the New Jersey Commission on American Indian Affairs warned Claire.
3: They knew some of these fraudsters before we even knew who they were. They were very mm. aware of them. That's why I've been um, actively involved with the Commission on American Indian Affairs uh, for the last uh, almost 20 years.
0: One of Claire Garland's cousins, James Reavy, also made significant contributions to the preservation of Lenape history.
3: He became the director of the New Jersey Indian Office in Orange, East Orange. Mm-hmm. And he spent you know, most of his life uh, teaching and speaking and going out to schools and... Worked with uh, craft on different books and museum setups and powwows and letters and worked with the governor of New Jersey and got the group to uh, participate in one of the state fairs. I think in Mm -hmm. 1939. And so he he probably was the main one to keep the family story, heritage,
0: alive. Kraft was Herbert Kraft, an anthropologist, archaeologist, and professor at Seton Hall University. He wrote several articles and books on the Lenape. When Kraft had questions about excavated artifacts from a possible Lenape settlement, his first call was to James Reavy, who was also called Lone Bear. Lone Bear spoke at schools all across New Jersey. He crafted objects that Lenape used. For example, Lenape used seed bags made from deer hide. Lone Bear knew this because of oral histories he heard from his mother and father. He made a seed bag from deer hide. It was his dedication to detail that made Lone Bear an immensely popular speaker that shared the culture of the Lenape. In the 1990s, Garland received grants to write the stories shared with her by her aunts, uncles, and grandparents. She knew if she did not contribute to the preservation of the culture of Lenape, it would disappear.
3: Because I realized that once that generation was dying and moving on, we children who were the grandchildren were now the old ones. And Mm -hmm. if we didn't try to really save it and make records and make our best effort to save the family history, it, it just could fade with the times.
0: While Claire Garland and Lone Bear Revy were engaged in various kinds of preservation and protection of Lenape culture, the people of Sandhill were selling their property. The community shrunk. Other portions were preserved by a New Jersey land preservation program known as Green Acres.
3: A lot of that 15 acres was turned into green acres by the town. Mm -hmm. Some of it was sold to other people because as, as the next generation or two moves away or goes in the military, is not home, is not, nobody's doing farming. People's needs change, and they sell the land.
0: Most of the Sand Hill community is gone. Even one of its most prominent citizens, James Lonebear Bear Reavy, has passed away. But something very important remains.
3: The only thing we have left is our history. That's why we try to just keep it going, so that the world knows that we're still here and still participating in American life.
0: It is important for us to be respectful of Lenape that live today in the United States and Canada. You wouldn't call yourself a descendant of Americans, but you'd say you're an American. They are not descendants of the Lenape. They are Lenape. Thank you for listening to Uncovering Raritan Landing. I'm Douglas Womack. Uncovering Raritan Landing is produced by me and Mitchell Cavett who is also our technical advisor. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Middlesex County Board of County Commissioners. This podcast is dedicated to County Commissioner Kenneth Armwood, who encouraged us to do something no one has ever done before. Special thanks to Dr. Richard Veit, Miss Carell Hall, and Miss Claire Garland. If you wanna learn more about the Sand Hill Historical Association, go to their website, at sandhillindianhistory.org. Uncovering and Landing is written by me, Douglas Almack, Mitchell Kevitt, and Emma Young. Edited and sound mixed by me. Our theme song is Funtime by Alexander Mistrovsky.